Welcome to the Fellowship Regional Church Podcast. Good morning. All right. Uh, quick announcement. Christmas falls on Sunday this year. So, we will have a Christmas Eve service starting at 5 p.m. And we will have a potluck dinner, which if you don't come from like an old school Baptist place, maybe you don't know what that means, is you bring your own food, all right? <laughs> Not all of you. Bring some for you and for somebody else, your favorite thing, but we're sharing. We're sharing now. Where'd the deal? There it is, right there in the middle. It's the meal. We're doing it, all right? We'll have a service. We'll sing some songs. be some preaching. Um, we'll hang out. Uh, we'll get to spend time with each other. It's a thing we, thing we really like to do. We just don't do often enough. So maybe this will help prime the pump. We'll do it more often. Then, Sunday morning, we will have a church service on Sunday morning. So if you are free, you're available. Um, still got a little more room for Jesus. Uh, you can meet us here on Sunday morning at 1030. And we'll be amped up and ready to roll. Good? Or is just like, whatever. Colossians chapter 2. Last week, we talked about how we could find our fullness in Christ. The word that is used is our completeness or our identity, and we can find that only in Christ. We also talked about how our baptism brings about a forgiveness, a newness, and then we no longer are victims, and we don't see the world as victims. One of the ideas that we talked about last week was oftentimes we look at the world as victims and perpetrators. If somebody's crying, they must have been victimized. And whatever they're crying about makes whoever that is a perpetrator. So in light of the gospel message, when we hold that idea up in front of the gospel, here's what we find out. You're a lot tougher than you think. Jesus has a goal for you and a, and a, and a plan for you that is bigger than you just being a victim. In fact, I think what he calls it is a victor not a victim. So our trials become this thing that propel us forward, that give us a better image of who Christ is. So the, our identity that we find in Christ Jesus becomes our anchor. That is the anchor that keeps us from getting carried out to sea. And we're fishing with my father-in-law not long ago. He's got about a <laughs> I don't even, 12 foot, 12 foot uh, flat bottom boat, you know, um, with like a two-horse motor on the back of it, and we took it out to uh, Elk, uh, Elk, City, Elk City Reservoir um, Lake, and we're going to do a little fishing. So we get out there, and there's not much wind, but you know, you know what it's like? It's kind of like riding a bicycle. If you go to ride a bicycle, everything's uphill. Like it doesn't even, like you look at a thing, and you're like, oh, that's downhill, and you get on a bike, and you're like, crap, that's uphill. There's no wind. Well, you get out on a lake in a, you know, whatever size of boat we were in with a motor that, you know, I've ridden paddle boats faster, you know? Like, I've pushed paddle boats faster. And listen, this whole time, like, and I'm putting my eye, like, on a landmark. You know how you put your eye on a landmark, and you're like, we're not moving. Like, I can see. Like, I'm looking right here. We are not gaining in Wow, Like, right there. Like, we are not move i mean it's slow if we would have turned it all off right then we would have drifted out 
Paul's saying this, when we find our completeness or we find our identity in who Jesus Christ is, that becomes an anchor for us and we don't get washed on down. We don't, get, we don't drift out to sea. One of his concerns um, with us drifting out to sea is the teachings that sound really good. Remember, he talks about them being fine arguments. <clears throat> he said, they sound really, really good. They're compelling arguments, but in the end, they're empty. And if you listen too much to those things, you will drift out to sea. When you're, the whole of your religion becomes the power of yourself, the power of positive thinking, you just got to look yourself in the mirror and tell yourself, hang in there, you. You're tough. Are you, like, that's it? How did you get in the situation you're in if that works? We need something from outside of us. We need something to empower us, to strengthen us, to move us forward. And so what he talks about is be careful of fine-sounding arguments. What had happened was the church in Colossus had been infiltrated by a group of, and we're not sure exactly who they were or what they believed. We know the area was diverse. So Jews, Gnostics, it could have been other cults that were throwing these ideas into church. If you remember this equation, Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Jesus plus anything else equals nothing. When we begin to add to the religion, oh, we need some of this, we need some of this, we need some of this, it becomes useless. So Paul says, be careful, because the church had been infiltrated by these guys, by these types of people. The, uh, Paul's response to hearing about all these teachings, the know-it-all Gnostics, these deep seated Jewish traditions inside of these people. They had, well, this is the way we've always done it. I don't know if you've been in church long, but have you ever heard that? Like this, that's a thing. That's a thing that happens in churches. Like, well, this is what we've always done. We should always do it. Don't change it. Whatever. This is the thing that happens. They're experiencing something similar here, except this, this has a little more gravity to it. Paul's response to this is, you need to be grounded. Look at verse uh, 16, chapter 2. Verse 16. <clears throat> Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Don't let anyone judge you by this standard of things that used to be right and correct. Don't let somebody else's way of understanding religion or Christianity move itself into your world. If it doesn't come from Scripture, then we probably ought to hold off for a minute and not just take it and eat it. You know what I mean? And so Paul's saying, be careful. I don't care what it is. Now, here's, what's, here's the irony of Paul's words. If you figure out who Paul was in his own setting, in his previous life, and then you hear him say, the new moon celebrations the festivals, and Sabbath. Don't let anybody judge you with those things. You hear him say that? That is huge. That's huge. Because Paul's own description of himself in Philippians goes, goes like this. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those manipulators of flesh... For it is, we who are, it is we who are the circumcision, we who have served God by His Spirit, 
who boast in Christ Jesus and, who and put no confidence in the flesh. Okay, here he goes. Though I myself, this is Paul talking, though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. And so then he starts this rant about if anybody wants to talk about keeping the law and doing things the old school way and observing all the Sabbaths and performing all the festivals and doing all the feasts, no one has any room to speak. Only I do. Listen to what he says. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I am of the people of Israel. I am of the tribe of Benjamin. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, I persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. Nobody made the checklist bigger than me with all the Sunday school lick'em stars and filled them all out for bringing my Bible and my friend quite like I have. Paul says, I met the standard. If anyone's going to boast about what they've done to somehow leverage God into loving them or accepting them, I could boast. He said, but that is useless. So Paul writes to these people and he says, when somebody steps in and they say, you must observe this holy day. You must perform this feast. You must do this thing. You must be circumcised. You must abstain. You have to fast. You have to have all night prayer vigils. When somebody steps into your life and begins to push these things into you and say, this is what it, it, this is what it means to serve God, Paul says, it's rubbish. In Philippians, he calls them these dogs, these mutilators of flesh. Later on, Paul gets a little graphic. Some of you guys will appreciate this. The issue of circumcision kept coming up in another church. And the Jews kept trying to tell the Christians, for you to be a Christian, you have to become a Jew, then become a Christian. Which means all of you have to be circumcised, which you could see why there was such a rebuttal, correct? Whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm 39, you know, like... This is not a good time for that, you know? And Paul says, but these people who keep trying to press the issue, check this out, this is in your Bible, I wish they would go all the way and emasculate themselves. You think you're righteous because a little bit does a little bit of good? Then go all the way. Needless to say, that argument stopped. Paul, Paul shut that one down pretty, pretty good. So he writes to the Philippians, and he tells them, this is who I am. Like nobody is more ingrained. Nobody has more tradition and, and this kind of idea, this deep-seated religion ingrained in their being than me. Then he goes on. Take a look at this. Take a look at this next verse. Verse 17. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is only found in Christ Jesus. So the Jews had three springtime celebrations. They had the Passover. They had the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then they had the, the, the Feast of the First Fruits, or the celebration of the First Fruits. Along in there is also the natural observance of Sabbath. Everybody observed the Sabbath. You take the day off. When it got to this season, they had what they call High Sabbath, and God put another Sabbath day in there and said, Honor me on this day, do no work. 
And so when this, when this season rolled around, this springtime kind of season rolled around, you were to observe these Passovers, the, these feasts, these celebrations. It was a must if you were a Jew. It was a have to. The Old Testament speaks it at one point to say, if anybody does not honor these, they shall die. And now Paul is here writing them and says, don't let anybody judge you by that. And they're like, uh, is God going to kill me if I don't? Is that the fear? I mean, because I'll keep doing it if God's going to kill me. I don't want to, but I'll keep doing it because I don't want to die, you know? And Paul says, no, 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 you, you misunderstood. If you take your faith and you put it in this feast or in this celebration or even in your Sabbath, and that becomes the focal point of your religion, marking off the dates, hitting the right places at the right time, showing up and being present and accounted for. If that's the whole of your religion, it is absolutely useless and you've missed the point. See, up until this point, in their mind, the Jews, there was this thought that all of the feasts, Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, Feast of the First Fruits, that all of these were nothing but a story about God's history with Israel. This is how they identified themselves. We get up and we do these things. We have Passover every single year. Why? Because when we were in Egypt under Pharaoh, there was this plague that we were warned about to where God was going to take the firstborn of every single thing. And the only way for this to not happen to your house is if you were to take a blemish-free lamb and you kill it, and then you take the blood, and you paint it on your doorposts. And if you did, God would pass over your house, and he would not take anything from you. No death would visit your home. That was Passover. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, after this huge travesty of all these, the firstborn of everything dying overnight, you can hear the screaming, you can hear the wailing, you could see cattle standing in fields with dead ones laying right beside them. Same with horses, same with sheep, birds, everything. Everything is just dead. And God said, I want you to pack up because we're leaving Egypt. The Hebrew people had a pattern, much like some of you. Do you rush around when you make hot rolls for Thanksgiving and Christmas? Do you rush around? Can you rush hot rolls? No, you don't rush a good hot roll. Why? You got to wait on that stuff to rise. You mix it up, and then it has to set there. And then it does this weird thing, right? And it just slowly moves. And you have to wait on it to rise. That next morning, God said this. Listen, there is no time to wait on bread to rise. Mix up the dough, put it on a plate, burn it over a fire, get a little sustenance. We got a trip we're going on. Keep out the yeast. Once they moved from Egypt and they went into the promised land, actually in the wilderness first, but once they got to the promised land and they had crops, the feast of the first fruits, to where you take the first fruits of every good thing that you've produced, money, um, this, involved, this involved sons. This involved animals. You take the firstborn, the first fruits of every single thing that you create, crops. You take it to the priest, 
and then the priest will inspect it, and then he will wave it over the congregation in the presence of God, and when he does, that means you are now accepted as people because the product that you brought to the front, this is approved, so everything after it is approved. You are all accepted, and these are their celebrations. But then Paul comes along and he says, yes, they're celebrations, and yes, they were important, and yes, it's a part of our history, but there's something bigger here. Something bigger. On the day that Jesus was put on the cross was Passover. A quarter of a million lambs were being slaughtered on the temple grounds in Jerusalem while Jesus hung on a cross. And Paul says, it's a shadow. It's not a ceremony. It wasn't about you honored this even after this. What's the point? You missed the biggest sacrifice. The biggest sacrifice was the blemish-free sacrifice of the Lamb of God. Don't miss that. Feast of Unleavened Bread. That comes right after Passover. There's a whole lot of crying for Jesus' disciples and friends and people around because he's dead. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread suggested take out the yeast because we got to make a quick getaway. But it really doesn't fit the context anymore. But you can, hear, you can hear little pieces of this in Jesus' teaching when he says, be careful of the yeast of the Pharisees. What's that mean? Here's what it means. We don't have time to sit around and be lazy and let this stuff weigh us down. We have to move forward. So don't just throw out the yeast. Throw off any sin that entangles you. Throw out anything that keeps you from moving forward with Christ. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is no longer about, well, Israel had to make a, get a quick getaway. Now it's about something different. Don't let the pattern of your life become something to where you're waiting around for something to happen. Be assertive and move forward with your relationship with God because he's waiting for you. And then the feast of the first fruits, celebration of the first fruits. Do you know what Paul calls Jesus later on in the New Testament? The first fruits of the grave. Do you know what that means? It means that the very first thing that changed and that resulted in our salvation was Jesus Christ's resurrection. Do you know when he resurrected? Just take a guess. During the feast of the first fruits. It's a shadow. It's not a ritual. It's not about you. God wasn't just talking about history and he's kind of sentimental so he wanted to keep up the tradition. That wasn't what it was about. His whole goal was to say, I've been telling you from the beginning, he's coming. And so that you know who he is, I will line up the calendar with every single event that happens. And thus, Jesus resurrects from the grave and becomes the first fruits that goes before us. And then all of a sudden, God says, I accept it, which means what for us? We are now accepted. And Paul says, listen, Colossians, listen, my friends. All of that was just a sign. It was just a story. I'm, I was cluing you in. I was throwing breadcrumbs out so that you would follow me. I was trying to tell you something more. The beauty of it 
this passage, Paul begins to make quite a few lists. He's notorious for this, and he'll list out, so, list out a few things. So here's what he wants to do. Since these things are a shadow, and these things are not like a reality, like you have to do them so that you can be holy and righteous, what he's saying is, here are the identifying marks of what these men who will try to push these ideas on you, here's the identifying marks of what you'll see with them. Colossians 2, 18 and 19. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from who the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. First thing he lists, number one, these kind of people that walk in and begin to try to put these outrageous expectations on you in a spiritual way, you have to look this way, you have to put on your nice cardigan and your nice shirt and tie, and you have to show up here with your good jeans on, not your old jeans on, because if you do, then you can't honor God. Those kind of people, here's the first one, fake. Fake. Paul calls it, they delight in false humility. Here's what this is. This is, such a, this is such, a good, such a good description. When it comes to them compared to God, they are lowly. Oh, I could never meet the holiness of our Lord. I could never, ever, ever just perform the miraculous things that the Lord does. I am only a man. And this sounds very, very humble, but then they will turn and they will compare themselves to somebody else. But compared to you, I'm knocking it out of the park. Compared to God, oh, I don't, I can't even stand in his shadow. Compared to you, though, I'm first in line. He says they're fake. They delight in false humility. They think that is so fun. Second thing, false security. Paul's words are the worship of angels. This word worship isn't the normal word worship, like spiritual worship. This word is the word ritualistic worship, checklists. It's also kind of strange because here's what they did. Worship of angels. Well, all of us are like, no one's really trying to worship angels, really. But here's what does happen. The word means messenger. So what they do is they would like to kind of raise their own standard by rubbing shoulders and elbows with other people who think just like they think. They don't step down off the pedestal whatsoever. They have a ritualistic worship pattern that does not involve anything spiritual but what it does include is the connection with other people who will continually feed their ego. Get those faces out of your mind because I know you got like in your... I know that guy. Stop it. That's not nice. We just travel in our little, in our little cliques and our little groups. We just keep ourselves in that one little place to where nobody can challenge us, where nobody can step in and push us out of, the, out of, our, out of our patterns of thinking. And we just isolate ourselves from the world. That was false security. Third thing, arrogant knowledge. Love this one. He says they're puffed up with idle notions. Puffed up with idle notions. Only Paul uses this word in Scripture. Only Paul. I don't know where he got it. I don't know why the other New Testament writers didn't find it. But to Paul, like there was a word and it meant only these kind of people. Puffed up with idle notions. 
Check this out. It means a pair of bellows. You know what I mean? How many of you have a fireplace? Okay. And so you get some, you get some embers in there and you put some, some logs on. And, and, and it, it was going earlier and now it's kind of gone out. And then you take these bellows and you stick them in there and you start going like this. And what does it do? It blows a bunch of hot air. exactly what it does. What's it good for? Hot air. And he says, these men, parabellos. Spewing all these arrogant, ridiculous things that mean nothing at all. Holding up a false standard of the way you should live and just going to town about how awesome they're meeting this standard that no one gives a crap about. Last one. They are fourthly amputated. He says they have lost connection with the head. They are amputated. Anytime a portion of your body is disconnected from the rest of your body, that portion of the body does not continue to live. You can thank me later for all I know, okay? It's kind of a scientist sometimes. When you take off a part of your body and you remove it from your body, this part does not continue to grow. In fact, something, something very different happens. It dies. This, this will live on. This, it's over. It's dead. They are removed from the body of Christ. Due to their own actions, due to their fear, due to the scary parts of life. I don't want to encounter God on God's terms. I only want to encounter God on my terms. And so I'm going to build the standards for where God can function in my life. And then that's where it all stops. And they become amputated from the body of Christ. Then Paul gives one more list. These are the identifying marks of their teaching. Colossians 2, 20-23. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to this world, do you submit to its rules? Saying, don't keep following these boneheads just because they keep barking about stuff. Like, that's not it. Like, don't do it. Like, you died to this world. None of this makes sense. The special dates, the holidays, all this stuff is pure garbage. Is there some good in it? Well, sure. It can be enjoyable. But does it leverage God to love you more? I sure hope not. He says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These were the things that they were saying. Well, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. If your whole religion is built on what you can't do, I've got news for you, my friend. Your religion sucks. You with me? And that's brutal, I know, but that's the truth. If your whole religion is built on the idea that this is my naughty list, friends, what are you doing here? Go, go, go wreck your world. Go have fun somewhere else. If that's, what you, if that's who you think Jesus is, because it is not. It most certainly is not. Here's what he says. These rules which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use anyway are based on merely human commands and teachings. 
Such regulations have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship and their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body. So here he lists them out. We've got a couple minutes. I'm going to get you out of here on time. He says, number one, their, par- their message is perishing. The word is decaying or rotten. Their message, it's rotten. Necrosis. Unattached from the body, it is dead and dying. It's foul. Uh, second thing he says, their commands. This word is a different kind of word than the normal word command. This word is this. Follow the instructions to a T no matter what it brings about in your life. I think it's similar to the word that we define as insanity, correct? I don't care what it feels like when a boss is telling you, like, I want you to go out and do this. Like, that's already been done. I said go do it again. Like, this guy's a moron. You know what I mean? I'm not talking about Luke. He's not my boss. Uh, Or anybody else that's my boss. I'm just saying. This doesn't make any sense. These are just human directives. Go do this thing. Okay, does it make sense? It doesn't matter if it makes sense. Go do it. Sweet. You know that guy for sure, right? Third one, this. He says, their teachings possess... I love this. An appearance of wisdom. Well, they sound real smart. Have you ever read something off of Wikipedia and it was like, oh, that sounds smart. And then you're like, except it's not true. I mean, you mix it, it really does. It really sounds great, except it's not true. It appears wise, but it's not wise. Here's what he says. It looks spiritual and it looks wise. Can I, let me tell you something. There's a world of difference between common sense and spiritual sense. Somebody starts spouting off a bunch of things that just make common sense inside of a spiritual world, we have stepped completely out of our minds for a minute. We've died to this world and all of its common sense sometimes. Some of you could maybe afford a little more common sense, but we're... And then he says this, and this one is is one of my favorites. He says their worship is, he says self-imposed. The word means arbitrary. Eh. We have to do this. Paul's like, eh. I mean, if you have to, I mean, whatever. Don't you think it's important? No, I don't think it's important. Not one single bit. Arbitrary. Self-imposed. This is the way it has to be done. Self-imposed. Every one of these things was a shadow before it was, a, and it was pointing to something else that wasn't the reality. The reality is in Christ. Then the last one is this. The harsh treatment of the body. This included the first part. To where the Jews would come in and say, you have to be circumcised before you can love Christ. Or the Gnostics that came in and they said, if you really want to honor God, be abstinent in your marriage. If you really want to honor God, then you should fast like 40 days a month. 40 days a month. If you really want to honor God, then you should do this, or you should do that, or you should do this. And all of these actions, rituals, and ceremonies that mean absolutely nothing. And then the final one, number six, last part of the verse. Uh, Last part of the verse. Their harsh treatment of the body, and last line, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Listen, I got news for you. When your body reacts and it wants to, you know, hang the bird out the window at an intersection, with me? That's not your finger's fault. We on the same page? 
when the lust of your mind translates to your body and you begin to want to carry this out, you understand that does not have to do with the body, correct? It didn't sprout from here. When those nasty, nasty things that you think in your mind and those nasty things that come out of your face, that is not a product of, this, of your skull and, and, and your tongue. You know what the problem is. The problem starts in the heart. And what Paul is telling the people is this. The problem, the biggest problem with their teaching is it's useless. It doesn't change anything. Here's the other side. Suggesting that the power of Christ is the only thing that can change our, here's a word for you, Adamic nature. That can change that nature of our heart to want to wander off and screw things up. The only thing that can change that is the message of Christ. A true encounter with Christ yields powerful change. Authentic humility doesn't condemn oneself or others. It builds up. A meaningful worship experience isn't merely ritualistic, but it's worshiping in spirit and in truth. A relationship with Christ that requires festivals, ceremonies, and Sabbaths is a vile and misguided representation of who Jesus was and is. Let us not hang ourselves up on self-imposed worship or hang anybody else up on self-imposed worship. He loves you, he knows you, and he wants you to thrive in life. He gave us this world, as he said about the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Here's the translation, and then we'll, then we'll get out of here. Nobody invented gloves until we invented hands. Nobody walked in one day, like there wasn't, gloves did not cover the earth, and then God was like, I wonder what we could do to fit inside them gloves. No. Gloves came from the idea that, you know what? We need them. And that's what the Sabbath was for. It was for man. Man was not made for the Sabbath. God has elevated you to a different place. You are important over the ritual. Our connection with Christ is what keeps us in step with him. 